0: Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Thanks for tuning back in. This is episode 215 of the Intentional Growth Podcast, and we're gonna be talking about how to integrate conscious capitalism into your entrepreneurial why so that way you can intentionally grow the value of your company to accomplish the impact that you want to make in the world and in your life. I've become personally unbelievably passionate about conscious capitalism as an overall theme with business. Doesn't mean you have to adhere to it, but if you're tuning in, you probably gravitate towards some of the things I've been talking about on the show. And to kind of give some context behind the episode that we're about to dive into is I talk about valuations and finance and strategies to grow value and private equity and ESOPs, all those different mechanical strategies in business because I want people that are current business owners to understand those things so that way the good people that own companies can put their focus into areas that truly make a difference in all the stakeholders of their business and they can make the choices that align with their personal drivers. That's why the first principle are your drivers. What do you want from your business and why and what legacy do you want to live and then how do you grow a valuable business To accomplish those personal targets that you've identified, you have to be good at the money and the strategies in the business to create a valuable, sustainable company to make sure that whatever you've identified as important as it relates to the business and all of its stakeholders have the highest probability of continuing after you transition your role or exit your ownership, whatever option you choose. So, What we're going to be talking about today is a conversation with an entrepreneur that I've gotten to know. Her and her business partner came to one of our boot camps in the online course, and her business model and what they're doing is so intentional because of the good that they want to do for all the stakeholders and how she's building a valuable business to make sure that she can continue to make a difference in everybody's lives. Her name is Ann Doherty. She's the co-founder of Illum Advising, and they're a research consultancy that supports the clean energy industry and electric grid. Pretty much, she's got a staff of insanely smart people, and they're helping their customers, who are the big energy companies, study the behavior of humans and their customers, which is pretty much all of us Americans, and how our behaviors could positively impact the move towards cleaner energy and a cleaner world that we live in. So. Truly, how to align everybody's goals to a better world, but not only is she doing that for her business and helping the overall world with the business that she is in, she's integrating conscious capitalism into culture with how she treats her employees and giving them the ability to grow as human beings and individuals. And just the amount of things that she's doing intentionally, and then also trying to make money and have a valuable business so that way she can continue to make people's lives better is amazing. So the conversation that I have with Anne is a practical one about what you can be doing and what you should be thinking about to instill your entrepreneurial why, start thinking about what you want, and then how can you grow a company that continues to accomplish the things that are important to you and that make an impact in the world. Anne and Sarah with all of the Illum employees are awesome examples about how being intentional about what you want from your business and engineering the company around your values puts you in an upward spiral of success. All I can think about is that upward spiral in the Conscious Capitalism book cover. If you haven't seen it, it's the exact feeling that you get when you hear Ann's story. I hope you enjoy the interview with Ann and our conversation. If you want to be more intentional, I suggest you check out our Intentional Growth course. We also have a virtual cohort coming up. We launch in October. All of this is on our website. We did a little bit of a refresh to make it easier to navigate. So you can go on to the education section on our website, all of our upcoming virtual cohorts where there's six to 10 business owners going through the course over four calls over four weeks. It's 1450, you get the course and you get to meet six to 10 other entrepreneurs that are learning valuations, value growth. So that way they have a high probability of getting what they want out of their business. Without further ado, here's my interview with Ann. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. All right. And so we are back and I'm going to even be open and honest for all the listeners. This is the first time that I didn't hit record on the <laughs> podcast. You and I went back and forth. I loved it. I was just thinking that I was going to sit down and do the intro right after we got done with the interview. And I was like, there's no interview. <laughs> so here we are and you were gracious enough to come back on. And I, I think, you know, we covered so much ground that I think we're going to have just as much fun, if not more fun, because I just got done listening to a webinar that you guys did with, well, I think you had, what, 250, 300 people on yeah. it? Yeah. So for the listeners who are not familiar with you, Alum, your story, because they did not hear the first uh, try at this, let's give them a backdrop of you, how you ended up becoming an entrepreneur, what Alum does, and then we can kind of dive into how you've tied in what you're doing as an entrepreneur, your passions with customers, your business model, and then like kind of the future strategies that you want to take with the business.
1: All right. We'll talk about all the things. I'm excited to chat with you again. Honestly, I was a little excited when you told me we didn't record because I got to talk to you again, (laughs) which is always so fun. (laughs) (laughs) So fun. Anyway, um, I'll start with the loom. So loom is a research consultancy uh, that operates in the sort of spirit or vein of a management consultancy, but we support the energy industry, specifically the clean energy industry and the electric grid. We also work in natural gas services as well. But if you think about all of the various services that supply electricity or electric and gas power to households and businesses, we support on what folks call the demand side. So we look at the human dimensions of what's driving power, um, power demand, and uh, how that integrates with clean energy objectives and climate mitigation objectives. So loom um, is a consultancy of, let's say, I think we have about 32 people now, spanning uh, social scientists to data scientists. So we have Anthropologists, sociologists, um, urban planners, um, engineers, data scientists, statisticians, mathematicians, physicists who all work.
0: Um so really, really uneducated people, right? Totally uneducated <laughs> people. Yeah, <right. laughs>
1: Every- everyone's just winging it. But, um, you know, our team essentially contributes to our clients' problems, but our goal is to look at things from the human's perspective. And I know that that might sound a little odd to folks who work in, say, consumer products where everything is human centric. When you think about the energy world, so much is about systems and supplies, massive grid infrastructure development, uh, power plant building, all of these things uh, and often the consumer the user, is only looked at in the form of you know demand statistics and not in terms of their needs and so Allume, uh was founded with a goal of centering the dreams and aspirations of humans in our energy challenges so that we can all benefit from a clean energy and just energy transition and that that comes in part from my background so just to give you a little history on myself and also my business partner sarah
0: before we do that uh, and can you- yeah sure I, I, this is going to tie in on just for a little bit more context, because I think this will weave in, in and out of the entire episode is, so specifically, you know, a lot of you know, anybody that's listening in is familiar with paying their electric bill or their, yeah. their gas bill, right? So sure. when you say like, you know, because I've read you, when you and I sparked up the conversation at the boot camp and we started talking and I was like, oh my God, I should probably just get taught by Ann about what's going on out there. <laughs> you know, we, we talked about the book, The Grid. Mm-hmm. How haphazard it was created, et cetera. So, like, what you know, a lot of people are used to just paying their bill and like ha- not having any interaction. It's so out, like out there. So, when you're talking about the, the human side of this, and because you know, there's a lot of components to the human side of who's consuming this. So, maybe kind of mm-hmm. give a, maybe a practical example of when you're saying, okay, you know, what do you mean by the human side? How are you changing the behavior? And then, how are you lining up with your customers who are the, the big, huge, you know, en- energy companies who are supplying this?
1: Oh man, do we have a couple hours to get through this? <laughs> uh, you know, this utility or service that we're also used to—that's so ubiquitous—has so much going on behind the curtain. So you turn on the light switch, and you know your lights come on. But uh, behind the scenes, there are system planners, regulators, utilities, and all these different actors who are, are essentially charged with making sure that your lights stay on, or that every time you turn that light switch on, that you get the power that you're looking for. And generally speaking, they're quite successful. But one of the things that we do is we we look at how consumer behavior collectively has an impact on the demand of the electric grid. And we look to help our utility clients identify technologies and solutions that make that demand easier to manage. So what we can't have, generally speaking, are people all using power at the same time? We can't supply that. Um, we can't onboard major technologies like electric vehicles without having a whole system plan behind that to make sure that enough power is supplied to those uh, new technologies. Um, every electric vehicle is the equivalent essentially of powering a single family home or a small single family home. <laughs> so you can imagine you're like doubling neighborhoods once everybody gets on board with with electric vehicles, which we hope will happen. It is important for a lot of reasons. But that does require so much thinking. Mm-hmm. So our team looks at uh, this from a number of different perspectives. One is what will consumers expect and what do they need? And how will that improve the quality of their lives? And how might we develop technologies and solutions? Things as like as simple as, say, smart thermostats that kind of orchestrate uh, power across multiple houses, if you will, to um, things as complicated as electric vehicles or distributed generation and solar, and how do we plan for that? Um, And then we also will look at the impacts of those technologies and services in aggregate on the electric grid so that those people who are trying to determine how much power should be supplied at any given moment can factor in all of these human behaviors into their planning. It's a really... Precise science. You're really, as a power planner, trying to thread the needle between, you know, onboarding these very expensive on-demand power plants that burn coal, that burn electric gas, with um, what we hope to be an increasingly, increasing volume of renewable power, battery power, and all of this has to be managed. Consider the supply perfectly, perfectly I mean, yeah. like,
0: exactly. and, and so it's so and just for like again i'll, I'll maybe dumb it down to like that, that that wasn't that was perfect but like from my own perspective like why you and i were talking about this when i read the book the grid they were talking about like and i never knew this you flip on the light switch that power is immediately coming from somewhere else like power yeah. isn't just stored anywhere and there was like some stat i'm gonna totally butcher but like if Elon Musk built the biggest battery power, whatever, like like ten billion dollars in this battery, it would only hold like the backup power for like four hours of like a yeah. city. So you're like, okay, they're, they're, it's immediately coming from somewhere, mm-hmm. and how well this has to be managed. And I think how for granted we all take what we have, and that's kind of tying what is when you're saying consumers. It's just the American life. Yeah. How does that oh, yeah. relate with energy? And then how do we make all this stuff? You know, this ties so well into. This episode of conscious capitalism, building value for all the stakeholders. What an amazing topic to be able to do in that. When, and again, this has to be almost like broken down because people, it's so. It's almost like, what's the stupid analogy of uh, the fish don't even know there's water because they're breathing in? <laughs> yeah, You're exactly. Trying to explain like, this is what we're so used to that we're not even used to it. Like talking about it. Oh, so-
1: absolutely. People have almost a mythical relationship to electricity. <laughs> <laughs> no, no one's, you just, know, it, yeah. it's just sort of part of our lives and. You know, and I, I joke that people think it like, comes from God. Like, they just have no sense of these systems that are enabling this. Um, and, it, you know, and honestly, I think a lot of the uh, work that we do, sort of the political side of this, doesn't do a good job of conveying those things. Not that facts are necessarily the easiest thing for the public to absorb, but I don't think That's we tell the true. story well. Yeah, you know, the we don't, yeah, we don't tell the story well. And that's also something we support with, you know, communication campaigns and figuring out how to translate what all these actors are trying to do into communication strategies that motivate people to take action.
0: Yeah. Like no easy task. (laughs) (laughs) No. So um, that goes back to when I I, uh, interjected about some of the... Examples of your, mm-hmm. your and Sarah's journey to how you got to here. You know, you you mentioned on the previous conversation that we had about some of your background of what why you became an entrepreneur, and then how you got into this business, and then how that your theme, you know, weaving together conscious capitalism into what you're doing.
1: Yeah, well, I I should say I never thought I would be an entrepreneur. I never set out to be one. When we were talking last time, I shared I grew up in a little post-industrial town in southern Michigan called Battle Creek, Michigan, which is Cereal City, USA. And um, we even had a cereal queen <laughs> every year to, to, to you know, that would show up at the world's largest breakfast table, which was um, pretty gross in retrospect when you think about sort of the amount of dairy involved with serving that quantity of cornflakes. But anyway, I grew up in the 80s and 90s when a lot of the jobs that were prevalent in our community were going away. And the community changed really dramatically, as as did a number of um, small industrial towns in the Rust Belt and the Midwest during that time. And so I grew up in an environment where a lot of people around me were living in poverty, or family members didn't have reliable jobs, or people were really living on the edge, and um, I joke with friends that I thought I was wealthy because I had stemware and my family had college degrees, but my dad was a social worker and my mom was, you know, a public school teacher. I just had no concept. Of, of what it meant to, one, run a business or what it meant to run a business that was run in what I would consider to be an ethical way. Because all of the businesses that I was seeing, at least the big businesses, were taking jobs away from our community and having detrimental effects to it. Uh, and then behind that, you know, uh, a number of different temporary labor uh, companies and positions came in, but people were left without benefits, left without... Um, job security and were often let go before they were required to be hired full time. So I went to school really trying to unpack the impacts of economic disinvestment in the Midwest and deindustrialization and how that affects public health and well being. And so I spent my undergraduate um, and my graduate uh, career in sociology and anthropology trying to look at these challenges, these economic challenges from the perspectives of humans. What I didn't realize, and this will surprise no one, but it surprised me Mm -hmm. that (laughs) leaving leaving my graduate degree, I was this sort of like unicorn of a person who had a lot of interests in uh, looking at macroeconomic trends, but I wasn't an economist. And I was really interested in public health outcomes, but I wasn't an epidemiologist. And so no one knew what to do with me. And I uh, moved into applied research, frankly, because I needed to make money. You know, um, I was never a kid who had the benefit of taking unpaid internships. And so, I can't even tell you the number of ridiculous jobs that I've held from like corn detasseling to, you know, wearing, (laughs) you know, this one, right. To wearing like a lion suit to promote coffee for weird cafe, you know, and, um, but you know, I would do what it took to pay my bills, but, um, I moved into consumer product research. So I worked with a company that applied ethnographic research. So anthropologists to go into stores and, and physical environments and observe people making decisions. And then, um, we would supply that information to fortune 100 companies.
0: So interesting. It's
1: so <laughs> compelling. I had no idea. Again, i talk about like sort of opening the curtains, if you will, or like, you yeah, know, yeah. looking behind the scenes I Had no idea how much money goes into just orchestrating our, every behavior in the retail environments. And I was just one part of that
0: Shelf space, shelf spots, graphics, yes, and- all of
1: it, the whole thing. And, um, Anyway, I did that for about a year and a half, two years, and kind of hustled hard to get from being one of those um, in-field observers, kind of watching people sneakily in, like the Safeway or the Vaughn supermarket, in to a lion being. Lion suit. To, it, I wasn't in a lion suit. <laughs> <then>. I know, <laughs> but but I have been in the past. But um, to being uh, to being a manager in that space, and I think once I got my managerial. Um, experience kind of running uh, field projects throughout the United States, I decided I needed to do something that was more directly aligned with my values. So that solved one, pro- one, one interest, right? Which was applying mm-hmm. the social science background to be human behavior, but it didn't align with my values per se. Like if I was going to spend all of that time, education, and energy in uh Thinking about how to motivate human behavior, I wanted to do it in a pro-social way. So uh, I started working in energy. And at the time, I was one of those people who thought energy came from God. Like, I just had no (laughs) idea (laughs) where where these resources came from. But I entered the energy industry at a time when system planners, engineers, uh, policymakers were starting to ask themselves, well, how does human behavior relate to all of this? And I uh, was fortunate to build a career and an expertise as someone really focused on human behavior and the human dimensions of energy pretty quickly. And then after about five years of really intense consulting work, uh, I decided with my business partner, Sarah, to strike out on her own. And that's its own whole set of stories that I'm sure we'll get to. But that's generally my history and path.
0: So, and I, and I love this because as you and I were, because a, a couple of the pillars to this conversation are, one is how do you get in how did you get into this space of where you are? Because it's like conscious capitalism, meaning like, hey, we're going to try and do good by everybody and make money, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and infuse that. And we'll talk about the correlations behind that and how you've done it. So you've, you've covered like, which I think is great with the context of how you got into the space that you're at, which has a direct impact of, you know, doing good by everybody. And then we're going to then what I want to unpack too and is how that the how you integrate that into your culture with your employees and then also yeah. to your customers and then how you're actually making money on this because one you know just to make sure we 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 touched on some of the things that we talked about last time is you and I had this conversation of like you have this ability to do good, which a lot of people think is for, or or non-for-profit, right? We're Mm going to raise money from the people that made all the money to then go do good. But then there's business over here where you just solve for the highest dollar amount. And until I had gone through and read the book, Conscious Capitalism and and gone down this rabbit hole over the years, you can do both. And you Mm -hmm. have, you've been doing that and intentionally growing. So you have choices behind this. And I think it's just interesting when you're talking about, you know, just one small story and to, to then uh, explain to you how you built the actual culture and the operations of your business, but is like in the human behavior, when you talk about how human consumers go into stores and make decisions and like what you said, like you, you wanted to start a business that aligns with your values. I don't know if you in, consciously or unconsciously did that. Where like, I I've watched where people learn about like, let's say food. Like we know that certain shit kills us. Right, right. Period. Like yep. that's super scientific, right? That statement. <laughs> and and, and totally like, the moment, the moment that you realize this as a business, you shouldn't be solving to sell more of it. I don't right. know. That's just a yeah, human exactly. behavior thing. And so like, I'm breaking it down to like what you were talking about of like, okay, these big businesses, like, I'm not arguing with capitalism. It's like, but the moment that you realize that something kills someone, why should you sell more of it? Like someone mm-hmm. should stop doing that shit. <laughs> and mm-hmm. So like, it's yeah. about like what you're talking about is how to, in, you know, how to take human behavior and not to manipulate that to sell bad things to them that are cheap to make more profits. It's about doing good and making money all the, all around. So I just wanted yeah. to kind of layer in that you and I are both capitalists at heart and then there's a way to do all of this. Yeah, then- no, absolutely. Take that into your business and like, okay, like, you know, cause there's a lot of stuff that your upbringing brought into of like why you created the culture and the operations that you're, that you're working with. Sure. Well, you know, Sarah and I were
1: both working at a consultancy that um, in a lot of ways is you know, a great job, but we were young parents at the time working 50 to 60 hours a week in this, you know, in the energy field, doing what we loved, but in this way that felt really unsustainable. I myself had a two and a half year old daughter had, you know, was literally traveling with her to give talks and give presentations uh, at times, or, you know, once she was too old for that coming home and, um, you know, trying to cram in all of this sort of important social time and then working into the evenings to get my job done. And, you know, Sarah and I stepped back from what this, what this kind of hustle looked like felt like, and this is really typical for management consultancies. You know, you pay people salaries for 40 hour work weeks, you work them 60, you're making money hand over fist. And we started doing, you know, just kind of running analysis, uh, both on our, you know, our standard rates, our multipliers and what we needed for ourselves, And so at the heart of that was, you know, we really wanted to bring forward what I would call a more feminist model to business, but also, you know, put another way is a really family centric model or human centric model, which basically says, you know, anyone can be successful in a job and career by doing excellent work when they show up to work, but also should have the, I don't even want to say luxury, the right, the right to go home and be with their family, and be with the people that they love, right? I mean, we we don't work just to work, <laughs> you know? We don't work to 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 just work more, build more, earn more. Well, some people do, but that's not necessarily why I was working, why I wanted to work, and it wasn't no, what Sarah wanted to be doing. So we felt like we could build a model, essentially, from the, um, you know, from the bill rates that we were developing that provided comprehensive benefits that provided unlimited vacation time, that provided really um, progressive for a small company health care and insurance policies, life insurance, while also trying to honor people's personal lives. And we've been quite successful at that. One of the reasons why I call this sort of a feminist model, and we're seeing this all over the news right now, is that uh, women, for better or worse, bear the brunt of domestic labor. And the pandemic has only exemplified that. It's forcing so many women out of the workplace simply because absent school systems, absent childcare, someone has to pick up the slack. And so um, that typically falls to uh, women. And we, uh, we, as a company, saw so many women who are exceptionally talented being, if not forced out of the workforce, overlooked in their professional development Because of these standard expectations in management consulting, which is essentially you know the endless hustle, right, to to the top. (laughs) (laughs) And so, we thought also this model will solve for a talent gap in a way that we face in our industry as well, where we need more thinkers. We need, as you, as I've explained to you, highly specialized. Um, folks to work, people, yeah. <laughs> yeah, really smart people to work on these problems, but so many really smart people, and particularly um, in our industry, women were not getting the jobs that they deserved in part because of their demands in their, in their homes. And so we uh, we really wanted to create an environment where you could um, advance based on your ability to get the work done in the time that you committed to, not just uh, in terms of sheer volume of work. So, um,
0: well, I was going to say, go and there's a couple of things that I want to kind of peel back in that. Cause just, it's it like, I, I think that there's like a mindset shift as we're talking about conscious capitalism, the things that you're discussing, mm-hmm. there's this preconceived notion that there's give and take, right? So like you can, you either have to solve for the highest dollar amount and like consume everything in your path to do that. Or you have to take, to give these Pre, these benefits that people don't deserve and that like brings entitlement and all this, you know, because like you have to like break down those beliefs. I, I think because like what you're discussing is now starting to like with the data and I don't, and there's some people that are on the show, but like you have more productive people, you have mm-hmm. higher margins, you have the ability to charge more. So like, this isn't just giving up money to do yeah. these kind of things. And I, And I think what's crazy too is like, like, I mean, I have a wife who's working who, when we have twin girls that are four, like they love her, like wait, they've been sick and with what's going on, like they've been home and like, for sure, they just consume more of her time. So then I have to do more logistics around the house and all like, so we're a team and it's so freaking hard. (laughs) So it's It's impossible. she was 10 (laughs) times smarter than me. I mean, still is like, you know, way. So she's so valuable to the workforce, but then there's this constraint that you're talking about. Where like, it's so interesting because I was having this, and this is one of the conversations that you and I had to, uh, t- back over to you is this is, I were, I don't know where the breakdown was where employees had to be cogs. Yeah. Whereas in like, Hey, if you'd solve for this, you actually, if you're selfish and greedy, you would actually do what you're talking about because companies that are doing what you're talking about actually outperform. Yeah. So, they, they, like, I just wanted to break down some of those things so I can tee it back up to you to, to explain what you're doing to say that you're not just giving things away and k- creating entitlement because I think there's a lot of that for some reason.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think I think we've been told a story over the course of our lives that um, that people don't deserve to live well. That like that it, you know it's it's assumed that you have to quote unquote earn everything that you get, but that somehow working a standard job equals having not earned that, like you have to be extra shiny, extra special to get those things. And I think that's a really convenient myth for people who are looking to consolidate power and consolidate capital. But that said, I mean, to your point, we are doing exceptionally well as a company. We grew from two people to 32 people in seven years. You know, our revenue is commensurate with that. We uh, maintain profit margins between 14 and 30%, depending on the year. You know, and Sarah and I have built a company that has an ethos and a brand that is um, palpable. People know us when they see us, they can feel our work, and they want to back us. I mean, the other thing that I realized was we were building this company, and Sarah um, as well, was that most of our clients now were our peers, right? They're coming from the same generation, living with the same frustrations about the workforce and looking to invest in and identify alternative ways of being that supported people's whole lives. And there is a real generational shift in terms of what people are willing to accept um, for their lives. And we found that our clients wanted us because they wanted to support our values right? They believed in what we were doing. But more than that, our work product is exceptional. You know, we deliver um, very rigorous research and thoughtful and insightful research, and we surround it with um, important storytelling and graphic designs and um, provide our clients with uh, content that allows them to communicate with their executives and their senior management, and it makes them look good ultimately. But um, reputationally, I would say that um, we are considered on par with all of the other Consultancies we could have worked for, or and that we couldn't have imagined competing against when we launched, and ended up becoming real contenders, you know, to their to them.
0: Well, and I just think too, like when when you think about it, like, I'm curious on like for recruiting strategies or like how yeah. we're maintaining this balance of the culture, where like at what point does someone say like this is ridiculous? How you know, many times I've talked to people that are like in their prime right now before COVID, they're working at Accenture or KPMG, traveling, yeah. making gobs of money and hate their lives. Oh, yeah. Too many, too many people that have been on this show that are worth insane amounts of money and then they realize, like, it's not about the money. I can't just sit on a board and get things done. So, like, yeah. by able to, like have the operations that you have in the culture, like you're able to attract people that can get shit done faster and better and smarter. And, you know, they attract better clients. And I I don't know, it just seems like a no brainer to me, and It's just, it's hard to (laughs) like. it is.
1: It is a no brainer. And maybe it's a no brainer for us because we, we are, I think we're sort of the same generation as well in that way. Um, But the reality is, is that, yeah, I think you hit, I just hit middle age, a forties middle age. Um, we're,
0: we're, hey, Buffett's ninety, so that you're still you're still in the in the the below fifty percent mark. Okay,
1: awesome. Yeah. I, I, I will be Warren Buffett by the time I'm ninety. No. <laughs> but um, but anyway, um, you know, I think there's this point where you start to reckon with with uh, what you're doing, and you spend your twenties and your thirties. Um, If you're someone like me who doesn't, you know, come from a trust fund or doesn't come from a lot of backing, you're really just trying to get that financial security, right? Just to get yourself to a place where you're contributing to your 401k, you're developing a savings, you are building a home, you're building a family. And then, you know, and then you kind of look up and you realize, well, what do I actually need? Like, how much do I need, as you said? And um, for me, I had my own little wake-up call that I didn't share with you last time, but when I was... Pregnant with my daughter, I was diagnosed with a really low-grade form of ovarian cancer, which, as you can imagine, as a parent (laughs) with with twins, was like by far the single most terrifying thing that had ever happened to me. And I was lucky insofar as the the kind that I had wasn't prone to malignancy, so I didn't have to go through any extreme treatments or anything like that. But I did spend the first two years of my early parenthood um, going to oncologists every Four weeks or whatever it was, not four weeks, every um, three to four months. And that, I think, really shifted my perspective on what I wanted my life to be like, but also forced me to assess how I was living. Because, uh, you know, leading up to that, I was traveling all the time. And not to say I should be clear, after starting a loom, I don't want people to think that I wasn't also then traveling all the time. But <laughs> to be clear, I mean it's just part of being an owner, but I um I knew that sort of the stresses of living in ways that weren't fully aligned with my values were causing harm to me physically. You know, and I wouldn't say that like my job gave me low grade cancer, but I would say that whatever this low grade cancer was made me realize all of the ways in which my job was not making me healthier. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, right now, you know, I'm also living a life where I am, you know, going to my personal trainer three to four days a week, you know, lifting weights, playing roller derby. Oh, well, I used to play roller derby. I don't anymore, but um, doing all these things that were fun for me, right? That were fulfilling for me as an individual as well. And so, when I was talking to a friend about, creating a loom and kind of explaining the process, my um, my friend said to me, you know, Anne, you created the home that you needed for yourself and your business. You created the safe space that you needed as a business owner to live the life you needed to lead and live, and you created that space for others as well. And so I thought that was a really kind of interesting way of framing it, and I'd never thought about it that way before. But she was completely right. You know, we wanted to create a space where, again, people could live these full lives. And the commitment that we have from our employees uh, in doing that, the transparency that we provide them to keep them committed and our constant reassessing, self-assessing, and readjusting as leaders, I think creates this sort of feeling that we are, in a way, a family, that we're all in it together, that we're all building this house, if you will, that is a loom together. And even though Sarah and I kind of put up the framing when we launched, uh, based on our own needs, uh, we very much created a team by being very forward with our values and forward with our mission that is building it alongside us now. So it doesn't feel extractive. We don't have anyone on our team who is, as I think a lot of business owners will claim, you know, these have these employees or cogs that are just sort of sucking from them and not contributing, right? Because I think that's the adversarial mm-hmm. view of owners to employees. But the but the reality is, is that they're co-conspirators with us. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we are co-conspiring to create better services, to create a better planet, you know, through um, really ta- trying to tackle challenges of um, climate change. And then um, the other piece that we focus a lot on at Allume is on questions of equity and making sure that, um, that all people sort of benefit from this clean energy transition that we're working toward. But anyway, I said a lot, but I think that the reality is, is that I think when you live against your values, you live with your values, you live true to your values, it doesn't necessarily have to come into conflict with earning money. In fact, you can leverage, you know, uh, capitalism, you can leverage your business to enhance your values and to project those values into the world. Um, and I hope that people who are listening to this recognize that it's not an either-or situation, that you can do both. You just have to abandon some of these common myths about how it needs to be done. You know, if I think if I had gone to B school, I'd be in a different place. <laughs> if to what? At business school, I'd probably be in a different place. Uh, you know?
0: you, in what way, do you think?
1: I, well, I don't... I, you know, we Sarah and I started our business knowing a lot about what we do, but not a lot about the standard tenets of business, right?
0: <laughs> and well, and so, we can unpack that, but too, because like, I think this is, you know, as we talk about taking your entrepreneurial why into conscious capitalism, into intentional growth and what, I mean, what you said about using your business to leverage your values and your, what you want and to make an impact, you know, again, there's this, I, I think if you would have gone to business school, I mean, I think the last 40 plus years since Karl Marx, um, I'm sorry. Milton Friedman, uh, Milton Friedman <laughs>
1: is way further back. Yeah. 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 <laughs>
0: like different timelines. Um, <laughs> Milton Friedman, what like, we're going to optimize for the shareholder at all expense. I mean, it's yeah. just ridiculous. Like I, I love money too, but like when Jack stack was on the show and he's like, I mean, he saved a hundred million in cash over the last decade to prepare for this with an employee owned company. Like that's called true like capitalism. And yeah. so when I think about like what, you have to, it's prudent to create a sustainable business, but all these things are possible. You know what I mean? And I think yeah. that's the crazy part that we, like if the people in business school who like only think that that's the way, I mean, it truly, what you're talking about, not only makes sense from all the people that have been on the show, and we're like, I mean, so much money people have made, and then they're still upset. And like, yeah. you know, they, they they literally sell their business to then try and figure out where to put that money that aligns with their values, which generally is not as leverageable. It's in a Schwab, you know, ETF diversified portfolio sure. with one financial advisor or family office versus having employees and companies and customers that you can directly impact because of the machine you build. I just think about like how you know maybe maybe you can spend some time talking about. As you and Sarah have shifted your mindset, and like or like what what you're doing with the business to make sure the business is sustainable, and how you're going to be uh, t- you know tackling the equity in your in your clients' lives, but your family and your employees, like how are you tying all these things together?
1: <laughs> really easily, you know, with no work whatsoever,
0: <laughs> no internal conflict. It's all no
1: internal conflict, any of those <laughs> things. <laughs> you know, I think one of the most humbling things about being a business owner is that you're in a constant state of learning you know, you don't get to be an expert. Uh, what you get to be is somebody who is committed to building something valuable. Right. And, um, and for us value has multiple dimensions, you know, um, in terms of, you know, the finances, you know, Sarah and I grew, um, we doubled in size almost year over year until the past few years when that of course changes dramatically going from you know, five to 10 is really different than going from 30 to 60, right? And so um, right now we're sitting at this this size where we know we wanna grow um, more. And one of the challenges that we're facing is that we have to really align our roles and develop the sort of hierarchies necessary to, to effectively um, maintain our profit margins and to deliver really great uh, quality product to our team. And so what that looks like for us is um, developing key areas of responsibility for every single one of our employees at different levels. Um, being very clear on our expectations, being very clear on our benefits, being transparent about where we're at financially, setting clear billability goals that are paired with a clear understanding of people's benefits and packages and how they can and can not take advantage of those benefits over time. And then also uh, making sure that our team in some ways is almost as versed on the financials of our company as we are. I mean, the reality is, is that we we have a team of incredibly smart people. And I would say this is true for any business, whether or not you have a bunch of uh, PhDs working for you, is that, you know, people need to be clear on what goals you're working toward. And I think the, the financials are part of that. And one of the things that, um, that I appreciate about uh, being transparent around our financials is it gets everybody on board. It weeds out people who disagree with your economic philosophy or what you're trying to do, because if, you know, if you disagree, you disagree, you can, you can find a home elsewhere. We're fine Mm -hmm. with that, you know? Um, but then it also, um, as business owners keeps us really focused on what we're trying to achieve because it creates, um, both, um, an intrinsic and extrinsic accountability system for building um, this company, and we, our goal is to grow and remain profitable enough that we can profit share at the end of every year, which we do into people's 401ks, Um, and the, you know, the aim there is essentially to share the wealth, you know, that that we are generating as a company with the team who helps us generate it. You know, as we look into the future, thinking about what will you know, what we'll do for this, you know, the second half of our lives, you know, thinking about what's going to happen to a loom is, is central to that question. And it is something that Sarah and I think about all the time. You know, we've built this legacy of a company that is reputable, values our employees, is again, working towards good and is highly profitable. So how do we, how do we continue to build and grow that in alignment with our values and then think about uh, strategies for Sarah and I to do different things with our lives, you know, into the future as well. Um, and as we talked, you know, we have no intention of selling. The question of how we grow and how we create a highly profitable and maintain a highly profitable company is um, really central to just creating a healthy business, so that we can, while we're still owners of the company, you know, redistribute those benefits back
0: to our team. Well, you covered on some too, and that like so. You know, I don't think we brought it up, but you went to the boot camp and uh, yeah. What was it february march right before mm-hmm. was, the the world flipped over <laughs> but
1: yeah it was just it was literally just before i yeah, remember I like, someone oh, in our
0: yeah. well
1: someone in our boot camp was sneezing and i think like things had just been
0: back when it was not a big deal to sneeze
1: <laughs> <laughs> well right but things were going on in wuhan and um in europe and i remember thinking
0: Oh, uh, man. <laughs> yeah. It's like the like a, the the shutter that starts to flap right before the tornado. But yeah. The, yeah. The, 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 the reason we bring this up is because our material, the, the listeners that have been following me for years, you know, I was really getting rid of the word exit. I talked to Bo Burlingham recently about this because it's not about selling, but it's about understanding the value of your business so you can Tie all the things that you want together, and you were like the the literally the catalyst to us rebranding everything. Like I want to go because I want to dive into value and strategic planning, and but I just I'm not planning on selling. And finally, where it's like it's just about being intentional. You have to understand the end result because I think you are like the spitting image of like the people that I want. To make sure understand this. So when you think about what why you've built the Loom, what you're doing for your employees, what you're doing for your customers, what you're doing for an like an, an archaic industry, the energy sector of all sectors, to just take and build this, you know, machine that just cranks out billing people at 60 hours and you're paying them for 40, to just hand this off to someone to cash out and then have all of that go away because it's just about the money. It's just different. So now. When you think about like being intentional behind this, what, how does what you know the the things that you've been learning? How does that tie into what you want for the business? Because I think that's the biggest misnomer is that you just have to sell, but you can continue to do what you you can accomplish a lot of your goals. I believe if you're thinking about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things I really loved about the boot camp, aside from just how clearly um, you and Pat just bring your values so forward and communicating and teaching this information. I mean, you both are so inspiring. And I just loved being in the room with you because there was so much energy And you know, you guys have so much energy. It's, it's so wonderful. And I think even Pat at a couple of times almost brought me to tears when he was talking about his Aesop and, and being able to sell it. But the, um, but you know, one of the things that I found as an owner, well, there are really two things. One was with respect to the company. So thinking about the value of the company is thinking about the metrics, metrics for health, right? A highly valuable company is a very healthy company. And so understanding how we think about the value of a loom helps us understand where we need to optimize the company to perform better and to perform more optimally. Uh, we also, I think, just understood what it what our options were, that in some ways there are lots of ways to, um, to hand your company to someone else that don't, doesn't necessarily mean that you're giving up or dismantling everything that you created. And that can be anything from, say, handing it to your employees, you know, turning it into an ESOP to um, finding uh, strategic partnerships where you're, you're, you know, strategically aligning not just on what you do, but how you do it, how you do the work. The other piece was just uh, the things I needed to understand for myself personally, you know, and I loved also that, that you guys did was you, you really looked at it from the vantage point of the owner as well. Uh, you know, f- for entrepreneurs like myself, Sarah and I, where we're, you know, first time business owners, we're, you know, running our own company, this company that we're building ourselves. There are so many considerations that, you know, that we just, haven't factored into our own personal financial planning. So I'm so financially conservative that I really like ignore the the business as an asset when I do my own planning for the future. I'm not banking on it being worth anything or being able to exit in a big payout because I want to make sure that, you know, that my my investments are stacked according to <laughs> according to that you know um uh, metric versus assuming i'm going to sell the company and be able to retire on that
0: making it um, the other way around <laughs>
1: yeah, making it the other way around which gets a lot of people being, into being a lot of trouble. wrong with the value of it <laughs> yeah or just assuming that um that you'll be able to sell it you never know you never know the econ- economies are changing rapidly right now but the other piece is actually looking at it as an asset and taking it seriously as an asset and thinking about what it means to have it and to own it and to guard that asset was really useful and that really came down to all these different um, ways of thinking about how we value it and how we think about you know optimizing across all these different elements of the business that contribute to the valuation and I I just found that so insightful and it really prompted a lot of changes for us as owners both in terms of how we think about our books but also how we think about uh, aligning our team and how we think about building out the infrastructure at our new size at, you know, with this sort of new level of power that we have as a company to be able to sustain itself, you know, in the next 15 years or so.
0: Well, I think what what you've done is like, you know, the work that you went through, when you said that you're, you you kind of recalibrated the structure of the business because you're having a visceral reaction against how you're running or how you're running your life or like if what you were doing day to day was not you know adhering to your core values, it's like you have to learn all the different ways it's going to unfold. So that way, your chance of setting up a loom to continue to impact your customers' lives, to continue to impact your employees' lives while you make money, you have to like you have to understand that to be able to connect the dots, otherwise. It's just going to just randomly happen to you. And yeah. you and I talked uh, about, you know, if you were to be sitting down, or like if you're a listener and, and uh, you're a listener, or you' somewhere in the, the journey of that entrepreneurial phase, and you are like, okay, I want what you have, right? Like, but I'm running a business and the employees are cogs, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean that's, a, that's kind of the standard way, but we have this machine. I want to. I want to start to align my values with you know the greater good, or like be able to do these things. What do you say to the person that is scared of like okay, there might be some fundamental changes I have to have in my business or who I am in order to do more of the conscious capitalist mm-hmm. approach? You know, I don't know if you remember I was talking about this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, um, we we did talk about this a bit. I I don't know if I'll give you the same answer I gave you before, but I'll give you one. Um, I think a lot of it is is just li- beginning by listening, like listening to yourself and being really clear about um, where those disconnects occur. You know. Um, as you know, as you kind of said, what for myself personally, when it felt like there was this way in which the things I was doing day to day were grinding against, if you will, there was all this friction mm-hmm. with my values and the things that I wanted to manifest in the world.
0: Can you describe? What that friction felt like. So if someone's going like like, what does that actually mean to you?
1: Oh man, it. I feel like it shows up in all of these ways. You know, it shows up physically in the form of fatigue. You know, it shows up. And I feel like you can almost feel it in your muscles or your bones. You know, and you kind of at the end of your day, you, you just like drop into bed and you're spent, and not because you feel like you worked hard, but because you're just drained. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a lot of that draining comes from. A disconnect, an emotional mm-hmm. or spiritual, depending on how you think about um, the world. Um, disconnect, right? I, um, it, I think it comes down to you know uh, making decisions that you regret. You know, moving in a direction that feels like it's not well aligned with your values. You know, one of the things that I'll just give an example that I was looking to sort of remedy was how I treated my subcontractors you know, uh, making sure that I honored them more as partners and not as people to sort of get out of the picture as soon as we won the contract so that we as a company could get more money um, from that contract. And, you know, as a small business, you you realize really quickly, like those those relationships are important to honor because they're, uh, you know, the, the sort of foundation, um, which you build your reputation, but also that you create these mutually reinforcing relationships throughout the duration of your business. Right. So those are, that's like one example of like a small mm-hmm. thing that, um, that I was sort of pressured to do in previous work that I needed to resolve to feel like I was operating ethically. You know, in my in my life, right, and all those things take a toll, and I think that you start to feel like really feel it. But once you, I think, once you take the time to step back from that and listen to yourself, and I think the other part is listening to your team. You know, if you are this assumes you're already in it, like you already have a business and you have a team. You know, listening to those people who support your livelihood and support your well being by showing up to work every day listening to what they need and what would be valuable to them because sometimes it can be very simple. You know, A lot of times what people want is so small relative to what it costs you or, or rather what it costs you is so small to rel- to relative to what they gain. So it could be, you know, a few more breaks in the day. It could be, you know, a lunch that you bring in occasionally. It could be creating time for people to volunteer at organizations they love. But finding ways to kind of infuse your company with those needs and to um, really respect that people are showing up and choosing to be a part of your company every single day and that they have choices. A
0: choice, right? <laughs> it's a they choice. Don't, they don't have to work for you, right? Well, no. It, what's interesting is... For any business, whether it's manufacturing, e-commerce, or consulting like yours, when you I believe that a lot what allows some of this to to take place. I'm curious on how after or how you've gone through this. Is like when you're solving for annual income, like quarterly profits, annual net income, and like you're just like you're gonna solve like all the ripple of decisions from like you said, like what do you do with your subcontractors? Like do you let them deal with the mess up or not? Do you treat them like humans or not? Versus the long-term value of your company. But like, you can, like, if you're solving for this year, you're going to end up just the damage of relationships versus yeah. the other way around. And when you've kind of gone through this shift in the mindset, how does that help? And how have you started looking at metrics or, you know, versus like the grinding away of, you know, paying for 40, bill them for 60, like that compared to long-term value. How is that, um, how's that theme getting changed or how is that in- integrated in your business?
1: That's a great question. I mean, we, um, I would say that we are in the process of establishing formal metrics around it. Most of our, our, uh, way of sort of testing whether or not we're moving in the right direction is looking at our revenue, looking at our books and how we're performing, and then checking in constantly with our team. You know, how are you doing? Are you well? How's your family? Um, and it's solving for (laughs) like in moments like this, all of the, um, insanity that life brings to your business by creating um, frameworks and um, and space for people to be creative. So for example, you know, we, we always tend to our books. We have clear goals. We have clear profitability metrics. We are, and everybody in our company has clear billability expectations and standards. And we check in around those things all the time. But the things that are intangible that keep our employees with us is uh, you know developing parent guides for the pandemic and thinking about how people can be healthy and well when in quarantine and when they are suddenly homeschooling all of their children. <laughs> and also having to work and connecting them to resources, connecting them to ideas, connecting them to solves that uh, will help them get through that period. Rather than just setting the standard, we expect you to achieve billability at this level, irrespective of what's going on in your life and we, and we do have to maintain that standard to keep the company healthy but in order to help people meet that standard we then have to buoy them with with resources that allow them to to um, optimize their own family lives in order to show up for us you know um, so the metrics I think it's less about metrics as, as it is about conversations. Mm. If you will, like our books are in constant conversation with our team, <laughs> you yep. know we are in constant conversation with our team, and our team is in constant conversation with the world that they live in. And if we're not sort of tending to all of those things, then we aren't creating an environment that people can thrive in. You know, another example of that is a lot of the sort of um, racial injustice and unrest that's happening right now. If we don't acknowledge that within our business, then we are uh, failing to recognize what. Our communities are dealing with right now, and a lot of our employees, and particularly our employees of color. So, how do we bring that into conversation as a business, so that we're honoring the lives that people are living, and committing repeatedly to doing better as leaders, while we're optimizing our books?
0: You know, well, and that kind of you co- you covered, you know, kind of the wind of the sixth power of the conscious capitalism, all the stakeholders. You know. Yeah. You're talking about you because you're making the difference for the customers of your customers, so the, the normal yeah. consumer, your employees, then your shareholders, you and uh, you and Sarah. And so, I'm curious, when you now that you've articulated this for yourself, what impact do you want to make using these these resources and leveraging these resources? What is the ultimate goal, and how you want to impact you know the world with a loom? And then how to how how can you what are some of the things that you're going to um, take in to make sure that you're in, having the highest probability of success for that?
1: Oh, man. i just, I mean,
0: the, again, I don't even know if you want to, <laughs> I know that was a deep question, but I'm just curious because like. No, I you, love it. It's a good question. It's so in line with who you are that you are probably trying to figure out how do you keep that feeling, right? Because mm-hmm. you're optimizing for that feeling to not feel the friction we yeah. articulated the, the resources that you have to keep that. So what are the things that you're, you know, how are, what are the systems you're using to keep that true to that?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Well, within a loom, I, I mean, a lot of it's empowering more of our team members to build the mission and vision and, and bringing more people up in leadership so that Sarah and I aren't central to maintaining that vision. For me personally, i it's honestly the question that I'm living through, like walking through right now, but I keep coming back to to wanting to create more environments and support other people in creating environments like balloon so that more individuals, more families can live with uh, the sort of financial security and autonomy necessary to thrive in this country. And you know, as As government is stepping back from providing support services and basic uh, provisions for people living in poverty or even middle class Americans, businesses have to step forward as the arbiters of what it means to have a good life. It is precisely the ethics of business um, and as business owners that are in some ways serving as the moral compass for this moment, Mm -hmm. right? They are the ones who are intervening. So how do we create more businesses that aim to intervene in these ways, that aim to support the social good, the public good, and to do that in a way that is pro-employee, pro-community, pro-environment, pro-economic and racial justice? How do we create those businesses? And I know that there are so many businesses and business owners out there who want to do all of these things. And then the question is, how do we enable that and empower that? And then, and again, begin to rebuild a lot of these communities, like the community I came from that is still, has has still not recovered from, you know, from the devastation of the seventies and eighties, you know, it's still trying to figure out how to create sustainable businesses there. So, um, that's my really modest goal. For the well, it's awesome. Morning.
0: So how do we create more, you know, and which is the point of this interview, right? Which is about describing to others that you can align and integrate all of these different components. So what do you think is the most important factor in accomplishing this Like, or, or the biggest challenge in getting more businesses out there to do these things?
1: I really think that we need to unpack them and rewrite the mythology around business. And what businesses does and what it's for and who it serves. Uh, I think that's really critical to making sure that we create capital, as you said, sort of conscious capital that, um, that betters our lives. I mean, the reality is, is we need well-paid from a purely selfish, our predominantly capitalistic perspective. And any um, economist with their eyes open will say this. We need a consumer base in order to support these businesses. And they have to have money in their pockets and they have to be healthy and well in order to spend to buy these products to continue <laughs> to build this economy. It's, is it's so, so painfully obvious. It's I so, know. Obvious. <laughs> so we have to we have to step away from this extractive world view or view of um, business and start to see it as something that is self-reinforcing that you're sort of creating an environment in which people thrive so that your business can thrive.
0: Yes. Yes. Right. I mean, it's like, you know, uh, Sonny Vanderbeck, a conscious capitalism, private equity firm that I had on the show recently, like the moment that your business shifts to, Okay, we're going to optimize for stop buybacks, buybacks, and antitrust, and like you're not providing value to the world. Like, I mean, yeah. like you, like you said, like so the consumers, the people, need to wake up and they need to buy shit. Going back to my technical explanations, they need to buy things so that way you, Mister and Mrs. Entrepreneur, that has a ten million dollars sunglass company, can sell people more sunglasses if they don't yeah. have any money, they cannot buy two hundred dollars Ray Bans. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> like, and it's just so interesting. We're like this world of of businesses become world of high finance, just juggling ca- capital around wrapped in things and selling it to other people. We're not truly bringing productivity to the economy where people ha- can make more money, businesses can make more money. And, like, and, and I think the, the, the bridge of what you're talking about is the way to, to do this, where everybody makes more money. And like, and that, like yeah. you said, purely from a capitalist perspective, if you wanted this, you would treat everybody well, so everybody has more money. Better lives, they buy more stuff, and business owners make more money.
1: <laughs> well, and you know, and if there's um, any indication that we're not doing that right now, it's looking at Main Street and looking at Wall Street, and just the disconnect between the market and the quality of lives of the everyday individual. And there's that's it's not sustainable. It can't be sustained. And. And we, I think we as businesses need to be really invested in um, creating environments where we redistribute factors that contribute to the quality of people's lives: healthcare, uh, paid time off, and maybe childcare. I don't know, but and money, frankly, capital, <laughs> so that so that people can live and thrive. And it's not hard. And you can still build a highly profitable, lucrative business mm-hmm. while also paying my team above market. While also, you know, creating all of these benefits and delivering a great product. (laughs) Yeah. Allowing them to build lives. But what it does also mean is that I have a limit on how much I'm going to extract and take for myself, but that's okay. How much do I need?
0: But also, (laughs) I'm going to, yeah, I agree. But also (laughs) I'm going to say that that you're referring probably to annual income where you're building a more valuable business, so you're technically your wealth is generated is growing. Oh, absolutely, so absolutely. Like, there is a way to hold all of this and can in, in 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 the same context. And I think yeah. you know you, you layer on something like an ESOP or whatever, and we don't have to get too much into that, But mm. there's also a way to harvest the value without gutting the company. So there, yeah. there is truly from start to finish a way to accomplish all this. It just takes what you've been doing, which is being intentional or hating the friction from the cognitive dissonance <laughs> enough to just do what you need to do.
1: Yeah, I mean I think at heart I'm a problem solver. So if there's something out there that needs to be fixed, I'm generally oriented towards fixing it. And for me that was fixing that friction, right? And and I do really believe that small business in particular is the source of creating, you know, thriving communities. And so how do we enable that? How do we build that? And it doesn't just have to be small businesses. And I think maybe even a loom is quite quickly moving out of that category, <laughs> but, um, but creating these environments where communities are supported by the people who um, serve them with their products work. So I guess it's, it's also thinking about yourself as in service to the people who are buying products from you. If you kind of have that servant leadership mentality, I think a lot of it falls out from that.
0: So if you are listening and you want to like move the needle one way, whether it's mindset or in your business, what would be kind of the, the first step you'd, you would suggest for the listeners?
1: What would be the first step? Uh, I think it's getting clear on what your intentions are, you know, really identifying your goals and then working to optimize from
0: those. So that, that's the easy bridge to the, second, or the next question of what does intentional mean for you?
1: Oh man. I think attention, being intentional, is just being clear with yourself. Uh, like when I think about when I'm living intentionally, it's, it's me living true to my values and, and moving through life with that clarity. And sometimes when I fall out of that intentional space, it, you know, I can again feel it. I feel the friction. I don't know that I've strayed. But I sense it through fatigue, through you know this underlying angstiness, so coming back to myself, coming back to my goals, coming back to my values and my vision, are really these sort of anchors that allow me to move forward with intention, and um, the longer I stay out of alignment with that, the less you know fulfilled I feel, and so bringing myself back to that center is, is really critically important for me and you know, and I do that in like tiny ways, like having coffee quietly with myself every morning for 45 minutes before the family wakes up so that I can just think.
0: think. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, Before you jump into a day where everybody else's demands become the nature of your job, you know, your, your life. And so, um, So yeah, that would, that would be my question. So
0: you guys kick out a lot of great content, um, because you're educating some very difficult, uh, areas of the world. What is the best place to find you more about a loom? And then you also guys uh, did an awesome webinar. So I don't know where all this stuff resides.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, we have all of our content published on our website at www.loomadvising, A-D-V-I-S-I-N-G.com. Uh, On there, you'll find all the resources that we pulled together to respond to the energy sector around uh, the pandemic and COVID-19, how to adapt and field, how to um, think about strategies for understanding your market when you can't actually go out and talk to people, uh, which are probably useful across industries and sectors. And then we have um, a whole series on uh, grappling with um, racial injustice and economic inequalities in our uh, businesses and in our industry. So we take on issues of environmental justice and we take on issues of um, racial injustice and the histories of the energy industry and how it has and has not contributed to that and and to think through the solves. Um, And that came out of a commitment uh, from our leadership, from myself and Sarah, uh, after George Floyd's murder, specifically um, in response to what I could feel were the expectations of my employees. And this is where I feel like you're in conversation enough. You know what your team demands of you. And so, um, so we committed to pushing our industry forward through a series of webinars that are also on our website.
0: Very, uh, very tangible, very practical, you know, like, and yeah. I, again, you and I both being, you know, quasi economic junkies and like the practical things you guys are talking about when you're talking about, you know, the lack of investment and investing. This is all again, tying, mm-hmm. you know, capitalism into the different areas. I mean, I, I very much enjoyed it.
1: Oh, good. I'm glad you liked it. I think you'll see, um, threads of just really contending with like long policies and histories, but also thinking about things in reparative ways. How do we move forward intentionally to deal with these, um, these past wrongs? And I think that's also a really excellent role for businesses is, is reparative work as well. So I appreciate that. We also have a podcast, Ryan, that you'll just have to come be a part of. It's oh. new. It's <laughs> a, it's, I would call it like the baby podcast compared <laughs> to yours, but um, it's called Current. And so uh, we talk about a lot of different issues.
0: Energy and (laughs) what's going on with news. (laughs) Yeah,
1: see? See all the plays? (laughs) But um, we just had a really fun one for those of you who geek out on behavioral science where we talk about choice and orchestrating choice and how you make uh, pro-social decisions or um, environmentally positive decisions easier for the public through analogies like ice cream and tacos and burritos. <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> and so it's really fun. You can check that out. And um, that's both on, um, Apple's, um, sort of podcast as well as, um, SoundCloud. And yeah, you can find everything you need to know. You can catch us on LinkedIn. We are kind of avoid Twitter and, uh, But we do have an Instagram account as well. You can find us at.
0: And thank you so much for being gracious enough for coming on a a second try. (laughs) I know it's fun. (laughs) I hope
1: it was as good as the first. It was great. (laughs) But I'm excited to connect with you again when you join me on current, right? In a webinar. I think it would be great to have you and Pat share your insights with our industry. I think they would love that.
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview. I hope you got some good takeaways that there are some really, really cool things you could do with a company if you've got the right mindset and you're using it to lean in and leverage all the resources that you have. The big challenge is you got to identify what the heck do you want from it and then how do you grow value so that way you have the highest probability of getting it. My big ask is go check out one of our virtual cohorts. We've got one coming up. Our kickoff day is October 13th. We have four 90 minute calls over four weeks. You get the course, you get to meet six to 10 other entrepreneurs who are motivated and want to do the same hard work that you want and are willing to learn what it takes to do that. Thanks for tuning in and I'm looking forward to seeing you next week.